Welcome to the Comfy Chairs. I'm Kate, and today we're going to focus on how we can make the workplace better for everyone. So please have a seat and join the conversation. We're here talking today about trauma-informed workplaces, and I have a wonderful guest uh, with me, uh, Stephanie, whom I will allow to introduce herself. Thank you so much, Kate. I'm so thrilled to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and chat with your listeners about my work. Um, I'll I'll give you the, I call it Cliff Notes version mm-hmm. of me. My, my name's Stephanie Lemick. I live in Phoenix, Arizona with my husband, my dogs, and my two stepdaughters, teenage stepdaughters. And I've spent my entire career, you know, since I graduated from college as an HR professional. I've worked in really big companies. I've been an HR team of one. And I I love the work I do because I really love that kind of magic when you're able to support individuals and also support company goals, missions, objectives, which I think kind of leads well into my work I'm doing right now, which I'm very passionate about. I am the founder of an organization called The Wounded Workforce, and our goal is to build trauma-informed workplaces. 70% of U.S. adults self-identify as having one or more traumatic experience in their lifetimes. So this is something that is impacting our corporate environments, our organizations, our teams. And when we normalize the conversation, when we drive awareness and education about what trauma is and how we can better support folks. We just create better workplaces for everyone, regardless of their trauma status. And I've personally found, you know, as a seasoned HR practitioner, a lot of the things that are hot buttons or worrious about the workplace of the future, so to speak, they're actually directly addressed by trauma-informed work trauma-informed cultures. Trauma is one of those terms that I think uh, kind of either galvanizes or divides people. And I think it's very important for us to start with what do we mean when we say trauma and what then, by extension, do we mean when we talk about a trauma-informed environment? Amazing. Yeah, I know you you have a definition that you've shared with me. I do. And it's, it's so important. I mean, you hit on something that's absolutely my, a hot button of mine. When I say the word trauma or anyone says the word trauma, you get so many different responses and ideas. I mean, you get folks who think about trauma and they think about, you know, individuals who have been in active war zones and that's the only person they kind of identify and think about. And certainly those individuals may have experienced trauma, but it can be so much more than that as well. And then on the flip side, you know, Gen Z is so comfortable using the term trauma almost overusing the word trauma. And so it becomes more of this colloquial phrase versus what it really is. And so I absolutely love to start any of my work talking about, hey, what's our shared definition? So SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, originated the concept of trauma-informed care a little over 20 years ago. 
And so because so much of my work is based on this amazing work by SAMHSA, I like to look use their definition of trauma as a place to start um, because I think it is easy to understand, but it also creates enough space for the variety of experiences that can show up in traumatic experiences. So the definition of trauma we'll use is trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting effects on functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, spiritual well-being, or in the case of the workplace, performance. And it's really, it's a big, broad definition, a lot of words. So what I always like to tell people to remember are the three E's, event, experience, and then effects when you think about trauma. And that kind of, it really can encompass a lot when you look at that definition. And there are a lot of different experiences of trauma and individuals have very different responses to different events. So that's why it's so helpful to have those three E's because you may just think of a singular event and think this is traumatic or not traumatic, but that experience and effects is going to be so individual and really informed by prior experiences in someone's life as well. Yeah, it's a very easy to grasp definition. It's something happens. As an individual, I have a response to it. And then those two things together then have a lasting effect on me. Mm -hmm. And it makes it clearer that it doesn't have to be, I survived, you know, hand-to-hand combat in a war zone. Absolutely. And I mean, there are things like natural disasters for some people. Pandemics. The pandemic is a phenomenal example to look at when we Mm -hmm. think about traumatic experiences, because here's something we all experience. We all experience the pandemic. However, everyone kind of had their own experience nestled into that same shared experience. And everyone had very different effects. I mean, some people lost loved ones and then others, you know, sure they, they worked from home or, you know, couldn't go out to eat, but relatively, you know, yeah. In the grand scheme, not nearly as impactful as maybe some others. So you have these wide ranges of experiences in the same event. Um, I, I love that example because, I mean, we, we all understand it pretty intimately at this point. We all know people that had, you know, a quote unquote easy pandemic and then yeah. people for whom it was life altering because no two people had the same experience. I'm seeing trauma, trauma informed, really, there seems to be a surge in the conversation about it. The easy logic to me is that recovering from the pandemic, that's why the conversation is much more active. Why do you think it's something that's showing up um, in the literature, in social media, all the places? All the places. I think you have one piece of it absolutely correct. In fact, you know, just a a few weeks ago, a few days ago, um, Harvard Business Review published an article, what are the four things that are going to change the workplace the most? And absolutely, number one, the way we approach and relate to work as a society is shifting drastically. So Mm -hmm. Harvard Business Review pointed to that 
I would say that it is a great summation of all of the things that were kind of packed into our experiences over the last three years. We're watching traumas play out in front of us mm-hmm. almost constantly. Um, you know, yeah. right now we're seeing what's going on in Israel and Palestine. And that is kind of, it, it's hard to avoid, even if you want to, Um There is this fabulous quote about when we watch trauma, when we're constantly surrounded by trauma and think we're not affected by it, even if it's not our personal experience, it's like standing in a rainstorm and thinking you're not going to get wet. We're wired for empathy, you know, mirror neurons fire when we, when we see pain, when we see joy, Mm -hmm. of course, seeing someone suffer you know, for healthy people you know, who have normal psychology, it's going to have an impact on us. And it doesn't mean that our lives are altered to the same extent, but there is now a mark on our psyche as a result of it. Other thing I think that's driving trauma-informed workplaces, because I don't want to miss out on this, because I think it's really important. Um, Gen Z, um, mm-hmm. I, I picked on Gen Z a little bit up front because they are a little more colloquial with the term trauma, but they're also really a lot more comfortable bringing their full self, genuine self to work and mm-hmm. talking about traumatic experiences. And soon rather than later, Gen Z is actually going to make up well over half of the working adults yeah. in the U.S. So that was another thing, actually, the Harvard Business Review article pointed to, and they called it the youth quake, Gen Z entering the workforce. And their expectations about work are so different. And I think for millennials, I think for, you know, my generation, our generation, the way we related to expectations around organizations addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think that's the way Gen Z is going to relate to mental health at work, wellness at work, Mm -hmm. trauma-informed workplaces, however you want to kind of frame it. I think it's a really important demand that we're Mm -hmm. going to see Gen Z kind of bring with them to the workplace. So I think those two things together are really what's driving this, you know, this is the moment to finally have these conversations. I believe that this is the direction that we were headed prior to 2020. What the pandemic did for a lot of reasons is it accelerated um, these changes that were coming, not just in terms of the experience of trauma, but the workforce expecting different um, because we saw something very different happen during that time. And it opened up the avenue to start making changes. And it concerns me. This is probably a different topic for a different day. But as a former HR person, it concerns me to see so many employers trying to f- kind of forcibly revert back. And I think I think we're poised for um, some unpleasant surprises on that front. I do, too. I do, too. I to to not totally derail our conversation. I agree. <laughs> we could probably have a whole nother conversation on this. That's the it's, next time you come on. the, the y- Yes. Podcast. <laughs> I, I think um, when it comes to what we all experienced in the pandemic around work and how it fits into our lives, I'm a big believer that the whole like work life boundary didn't ever really exist very well. And yes. I think, you know, like the, the jig is up. We we know that the way our lives and work are intertwined, it's just different now. And people recognize that. 
and my dad says this all the time, and I actually think it's really good. You can't unring that bell. Yes. Like the bell rang. We all know, like, you can't kind of shove something back in the box. I think those organizations and those leaders who really chafe to get things back to the way they were are, are missing out on a ton of opportunity to make things better than they were. Yeah, I 100%, 100% agree with you. Uh, I want to rein both of us back in um, to go back to that workplace. And I have, yes. I have a wonderful quote that will probably be familiar to you, ma'am, uh, around this topic that I think is a good entry point um, that reinforces the conversation about trauma. And it, it is, trauma-informed workplaces don't replace mental health care or seek to diagnose or treat trauma. They only seek to support in the context of the workplace. And those great words are from a post that you made uh, on Friday uh, on LinkedIn. And I thought, wonderful timing. I can steal that to kind of enter this conversation that I get to have with you a few days after. So, Amazing. yeah. So tell us more about that, that it's not about coming in and being the mental health provider. It's about support. Yeah, it's so important to me. And maybe it's my many years in the corporate environment, many years in HR. As a recovery HR person, you can probably relate, Kate. Uh, I want to make it really, really explicit and clear what trauma-informed workplaces are not, because this is something that, if misused, I think can be harmful. And one of the number one things you're doing with the trauma-informed workplace is looking to mitigate harm. So I would really say, number one, top priority is that organizations seeking to be trauma-informed understand that they are never seeking to diagnose or treat treating employee trauma. And I think of that because, you know, we can all kind of make assumptions and take guesses about what someone's experience may or might not be. The truth is, though, we are not credentialed professionals in this space. There are amazing people who dedicate their lives and have years and years of education. Another piece of this I think is really important, and I want to be more effusive than I have been. Um, you know, I actually had a, a great conversation recently with Catherine Manning, who is a phenomenal expert in this space. And we talked a little bit about how people can kind of interact and chat with people who have traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. And we are both firm believers that survivors' stories belong to them. So it's important that we are not asking people to disclose their trauma in a way that is coercive or in a way they are feeling forced to share previous traumatic experiences. Yeah. Who, what, where, when, how, and if they disclose their traumatic experiences at all, should 100% always be up to that mm -hmm. individual. And so trauma-informed workplaces should not be a situation where you're like calling your employees in and saying, let's, you know, have a cup of coffee and tell me about all of your trauma. It's, it's not about <laughs> that. Oh, like, can you imagine? Coffee, let's do it. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> unfortunately I can. And it's, I think that's the knife edge that mm -hmm. employers are going to have to walk right now Yes, is that establishing the policies and practices necessary 
to be a trauma-informed workplace is not about storytelling, essentially. Yeah. It is, it's how, are I, how am I managing performance in a way that recognizes the full person who may have trauma in their lives. And whether or not they do is not my concern, but the, the humane, human care of my people so that they are able to perform their jobs to the best of their abilities because we're at work, that's the priority. And that's the thing. Trauma-informed workplaces are about creating awareness, like we said, to that existence, that prevalence of trauma, and then looking to actively avoid re-traumatizing survivors of trauma or triggering uh, a trauma survivor, to use some more common language we hear. And then we want to avoid creating new traumatic experiences. I mean, I certainly know from, from my experience years in HR, Yes, people experience trauma in the workplace, but mm -hmm. since I've started doing this work, oh, holy buckets, people have <laughs> traumatic experiences from their workplaces. And the idea is, is to really think about our structure, our processes, our culture, our management style, how we approach that. So we are trauma informed. So mm -hmm. our actions we take, again, are avoiding re-traumatizing survivors and avoiding creating new trauma. That's really the heart of trauma-informed workplaces. It's not treatment. It's not, you know, let's dig in deep and work through trauma. It is about supports. And those supports are really important when it comes to someone's healing journey even if those supports are just a place where they know they're safe and they aren't going to be triggered or be traumatized. So this wonderful like past, present, future model. When people come to work for us, we acknowledge that they have a past. They bring their whole self. Then it's, what are we doing that we're not causing further harm? Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Then what are we doing going forward to avoid trauma and harm? If the policies and structure the support, the organizational design, takes those things into account, well, that would be great. Yeah, and I mean, what's so great too is, I think everyone, regardless of trauma status, benefits from a trauma-informed workplace. Because yeah. these structures, again, it's not about, you know, treatment or, you know, let's all sit together in a kumbaya circle and like <laughs> talk about our trauma. I think that's, you know, that's a misperception that's out there. It's really about culture systems and processes, which is, you know, probably a little less sexy to talk about, but I think it's also <laughs> the most transformative and impactful. Those are the boundaries for an employer as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, you educated me earlier on the principles of a trauma-informed workplace outlined by SAMHSA. I think it's important to, to discuss them. And then Absolutely. I would like your opinion about what you have seen be most effective in applying those principles. Absolutely. So SAMHSA originated the principles of trauma-informed care. And so the work I've done has piggybacked heavily from the work mm -hmm. of SAMHSA around trauma-informed care. And I've interpreted those principles to be 
applicable to any kind of workplace environment. So the seven principles are safety is the first one. So safety includes physical safety. So your physical person, your body is safe um, from any type of harm. That includes psychological safety. And then yes. also includes financial safety, which is an interesting one. Um, yeah. I could probably talk for hours on that one and why it's so important. Next is trust and transparency. Third is community. And community is based on SAMHSA's principle of peer support. Next is collaboration. And co collaboration, gosh, we talk about collaboration at work all the time. But when we look at collaboration as it relates to a trauma-informed workplace, one thing we really zero in on, because of course we're looking at systems and processes, is power dynamics, power imbalances, mm -hmm. positional power. It's a, it's been long been a hot button of mine. So really understanding how organizational structures, how different, you know, um, departments or function events, how, you know, different relationships create power imbalances. And at the root of, you know, almost every traumatic experience is an imbalance of power. And so really recognizing and mitigating power imbalances and the misuse of power is so important. And that nests into that principle of collaboration. I um, was able to tune in for your panel yesterday. Oh, and amazing. That was, that was very enlightening to me to hear that when we talk about collaboration in this context, it's not necessarily about the product. It's about how are we creating balance so that yes. the dynamic can be effective to get the work done. Yeah, I learned a lot. Thank you. That panel was amazing. Uh, like, I'm always over the moon. My panelists are so kind and brilliant. So I'm so glad you were able to catch that. The next principle is empowerment. And this one probably makes a lot of sense. We, we've talked about, you mm -hmm. know, a sense of powerlessness, things like that when we comes to trauma. So empowerment is huge. And I like to look at empowerment in four different pieces when we think about it as a in a trauma-informed culture. So there's choice. It doesn't mean unlimited choices, that your strengths are leveraged in the workplace. You're recognized for your work and your contributions. And last but certainly not least is you have an opportunity to grow. And so those four things are so important for every person as part of an organization. That way of talking about empowerment dovetails really beautifully with Daniel Pink's definition of motivation. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose are what you need mm -hmm. to provide the, the circumstances for motivation. And empowering people, giving them that autonomy is key to that. And choice, recognition, bringing what it is that will let you master uh, the task at hand. Now those fit beautifully together. And for an employer, empowering your people is a way to motivate. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, sometimes people like to use the term ownership. Like I want my team to take more ownership. Ownership and empowerment are allies here. If you want to drive ownership on your team, empowerment, those four things are an amazing way to accomplish that. The next principle is humility and responsiveness. No one gets everything right all the time. Things evolve and change. So humility and responsiveness, I especially love because it allows these cultural principles or processes to be evergreen because there's a mechanism to say, hey, this isn't quite right. 
anymore, or maybe it never was. And being, you know, open, transparent about that. Employee listening is going to be really important here. So having your employees have a clear voice, being open and receptive to that feedback is going to be huge. And the last principle, and certainly not least, is cultural, historical, and gender issues. Um, you know, some people may be familiar with the concept of generational trauma, how trauma is passed down. Most of us, if not familiar with that, are familiar with the fact that Things that were put in place years and years ago, slavery, redlining, those things have lasting impacts. So without having a lens to consider that, to consider those important individual aspects people are bringing with them to the workplace, we're not going to be able to fully recognize an individual. And that's really what's important and what we want to be able to do. One thing you talked about um you talked about employee listening, like listening to employees and making certain that their voices are heard. My employee engagement experience um, popped up and it made me think about listening strategies. Yes. And that made me think about application of these principles. Mm-hmm. What are a few ways that any leader, regardless of the size of their team um, or their type of organization, they could very easily start applying the principles? I think, first of all, the best thing to do with these principles is look at them and look at what you're already doing. I mean, I give this advice to anyone that's doing any kind of, you know, cultural um, audit or anyone even doing like an employee engagement survey action plan. Don't overlook what you're already doing and what you're doing well so you can maintain that because that's something that already exists within your culture. And it can be something not only to keep doing, but it also can be a springboard for you to build upon. More likely than not, you will be hitting on one of two places that I think is really important. And I think you can take action relatively easily compared to some of the others. Um, So empowerment, we talked about earlier. Empowerment Mm -hmm. is it's meaty. It's It gets to a lot of what we're doing. It also has a lot of benefits that are proven because you're looking for ways to create strengths leverage. So folks are going to be more engaged. Um, I'm a big fan of Clifton Strengths or Strengths Finder by Gallup. It is an am- amazing way to motivate a team, get a team working together well, and Wowza, it also taps right into strengths leveraged as an item of empowerment. And then when it comes to choice with empowerment, maybe this is me just oversimplifying, but my advice I love to give to managers. So if they could do one thing, they don't have to make any investment they could do tomorrow is every time they're working with their team members, ask yourself, how can I make this a choice for my team? And again, it doesn't have to be hey, the world is your oyster, do whatever you want. It can be as simple as, hey, there are these two projects. Is there one you prefer? You know, hey, here's the objective. I'm going to give you the choice on how you get to that outcome. So it really kind of works against, you know, the typical micromanagement. Mm -hmm. So empowerment's a beautiful place to start because I think a lot of organizations are already doing some of this really well. 
or more open or interested in investing here because there's so much overlap with some of the other benefits um, these things have in terms of employee engagement, productivity, business results. You're right. That is an easy, no to low cost approach. We're heading toward the, you know, the tail end of the year. I'm imagining that a manager could very easily make a small investment, you know, get themselves the strength-based leadership, and then you can spend the new year talking about how can we make use of, you know, your learning strength or um, your wow, and that way you are recognizing, you're leveraging, and you're making the strength the choice for them as well. And you're growing them. I mean, Mm -hmm. we think about growth so often when we talk about work as I'm getting promoted. And sure, yeah, that's absolutely a way we grow. Uh Everyone wants to get promoted. And that's okay. We can grow in so many other ways. And tools like StrengthsFinder, again, are amazing for that. Because with that small investment, Gallup provides all these tools and resources. So Mm -hmm. you can really effectively take action here. And continue to take action and make it evergreen. So strengths is probably one of my favorite tools as it relates to trauma-informed workplaces. It's so good. It's just so good. I I can't say enough about the strengths, um, material, the concepts, and the, there's so many ways to make use of it yes. too. Uh, yeah, that's that's our third our third podcast, I, oh, yeah. Stephanie, is you'll come back we and we'll should. talk about. It'd be amazing. We'll just... I also want to say if if organizations feel really happy with where they are with empowerment, which I could see really being the case for <laughs> an organization that's very invested in their people and processes, because aspects of empowerment are something that ideally organizations would already be investing in. The other place I would really go to next is safety. Because safety is so foundational Mm -hmm. and safety again is physical safety. Physical safety is super important. If you do not feel physically safe at work, holy bananas, how are you supposed to do anything else? We have to remember to think about safety holistically. So safety also needs to encompass psychological safety. And it's kind of a hot, sexy thing to talk about. So there's a lot of great resources around it. Psychological safety is going to have a lot to do with your managers and leaders. And we know managers and leaders need more support, resources, and training here. Google's Project Aristotle actually has amazing resources as it relates to how to build psychological safety on a team. It also has great research and information about the amazing impact that psychological safety has on team outcomes as well. So again, we're getting to something that's super foundational for a trauma-informed workplace that has resources available regardless of budget and also has data for those skeptics. And then lastly, financial safety. And I want to highlight a little bit of this here. A lot of organizations actually do a really great job with financial safety. And I would say, especially, you know, the typical like white collar corporate jobs, financial safety is looking at, you know, a livable wage. It is looking at, are you providing a 401k? Are you providing for additional support? So someone feels like financially safe and secure. One of my favorite companies, um, I learned about this year, they're called North Star Financial. Mm -hmm. They do budgeting services for 
organizations and they will help with everything from, you know, big financial planner retirement stuff to helping people budget for like their first couch. I have to say though, trauma-informed workplaces aren't just for white collar employees. So trauma-informed workplaces should be everyone. And so if you're interested in building a trauma-informed workplace and you are not providing financial safety, you've you've got a really big issue that you need to take a look at. And, you know, as we look at the level of income inequality in our society, financial safety is a big concern. So organizations that are interested in this, looking at safety, really need to think about livable wages, Mm -hmm. the frequency they're scheduling their employees, their employees' access to benefits as well, because that is financial safety is so huge in terms Mm -hmm. of any kind of, you know, safe environment. It's so important when it comes to trauma recovery um, that those safety aspects really bleed into our lives outside of work more than I think any of the other principles. So I think, again, in terms of the scale of impact, that's another one that's just super important to zero in on if you're looking to start your journey or build on your existing work for a trauma-informed culture. Yeah, I want to be clear too. When we talk about financial safety, it's not that we're saying everybody gets a raise. Right. Right? 100%. Yes. Even something like, do my attendance policies inadvertently penalize people that don't have a car? They don't have access to reliable transportation. The employee that's having to catch the bus and is dependent upon the bus being on time to be on time to work, are they being punished for that and possibly losing their job because of that? Or am I aware that there may be circumstances beyond that individual's control? And it's not that I'm making exceptions or displaying favoritism. One of the things I've heard you talk about I've heard that I've extrapolated in this conversation is that so much of trauma-informed work is about creating the experience of being seen and heard. Yes. And that's a perfect example, you know, but Joe is late repeatedly, not because he's a 'er ne'er-do-well, but because the bus route's unreliable. And what are we doing to accommodate that as long as performance is not an issue? Yeah. I think are the and, types and, of questions you can ask yourself in leadership. And and early in my career, you know, I w- worked in organizations where there were employees that were li- reliant on public transportation mm-hmm. or reliant on, you know, things that weren't reliable. And then we would blanket have these attendance policies yep. and it's, it's no good for anyone. It's not good for an organization that has to continually hire and train new employees. It's Mm -hmm. not good for the individual who is trying, but for reasons out of their own control, they are unable to meet, you know, a certain requirement. It's not good for society. Mm -hmm. When we have someone, like, honestly, if there is someone who is trying as hard as they can to work to contribute, to take care of themselves, their family, their loved ones. Don't we want to find ways to help them do that? Well, I also think about the heart, like the heart of leaders that are having to enforce things that cause harm 
yes. to people that that has an impact on them as well. And do you, do you want to be a leader that's demonstrating love for your people? Um, you know, by seeing, by acknowledging their challenges, or do you want to lead in a way that's essentially heartless? And that's one of the decisions I think leaders have to make in this, in this space of, am I demonstrating love for the people or no? I, it's so important. And I would tell you that right there, what you said, it's a lot of the reason why I'm not an in-house HR professional anymore. And mm-hmm. I would warn a guess that if you talk to a lot of HR professionals, especially who have, you know, either changed jobs or changed careers or gone independent over the course of the last three years, that's part of why mm-hmm. is you get to a point where you're like, I don't know if the systems, the behaviors that I'm upholding internally, I don't feel good about them anymore. I left what I think of as straight human resources. Yeah. They can't see my air quotes. Um, (laughs) After the recession in 2008, I recognized at that time that being the person responsible for being the agent of the organization during layoffs it it was draining I couldn't do it anymore and there are so many caring dedicated human resources professionals that are able to do that type of work every day I could not I needed to be able to turn my focus toward support and growth Um, so yeah it's HR is hard, hard work. It is not for the faint of heart. It is. And so actually, you know, one of the things I talk about is compassion fatigue or secondary trauma. We Mm -hmm. talked about it a little bit at the beginning of our conversation. You know, how do you expect to not get wet when you're, you know, surrounded by all of this? A lot of HR professionals, I really think, you know, who experience, I think we say burnout, but really I think what it was for many of us was secondary trauma. Yeah. And secondary trauma is trauma. Mm -hmm. It does create that psychological harm. And we think about it a lot when we think about first responders, when we think about, you know, medical professionals, sometimes even we think about teachers, especially during the pandemic, secondary trauma can come up in any workplace. It's what are you constantly kind of inundated with? And it's a real issue. And it's important to consider that as well, because trauma-informed workplaces obviously want to mitigate secondary trauma because that is a traumatic experience. We do have all types of people in customer-facing, consumer-facing roles who are hurting because of the way they're being treated. Work has to change. And I believe, you know, I, I wish I had thought of this myself, an amazing executive coach actually said it to me and it stuck with me. And I, I believe it firmly. Work is one of the places where we're still all kind of able to work together and achieve a common goal, find common ground. And in a world where that is less and less likely in other spaces, I think the workplace has a special opportunity to not only make work better, but also make our world better and make our experiences better. Work is such a vital aspect of so many parts of our lives. Sure, we're all kind of chafing at 
how work has been defined and where it's been in our lives, I think that actually makes it an amazing opportunity to be something even more than it's been in the past and, and be a real catalyst for positive societal change. Stephanie, that's amazing. I'm on board. It really, it's because <laughs> that's, it, you're exactly right. Some people have a calling to do something. They have, some people have that vocation where they've been called into a field. Some people are very passionate, but at the end of the day, it is part of the human experience to work because we share that. It is a way for us to set aside so many other differences because it's core to to who we are. So why wouldn't we turn to the workplace to make things better for all of us? Something that keeps cropping up in my mind, Maslow's hierarchy, because I think the principles definitely sort of echo. You you start with safety, you know, that physical self, and then can you work your way up through advancing growth, belonging, to get to a place of that self-actualization and fulfillment? Absolutely. The principles of trauma-informed care and work, we'll say, and Maslow, you know, those concepts, they give us a, a beautiful roadmap to get there. Absolutely. And they are so interconnected. Yes. When, whenever, you know, I'm having a panel discussion or a conversation, I'm usually referencing like three or four principles because they're so interconnected. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. If nothing else, you know, if you're in charge of processes, if you're thinking about culture, if you're, you know, considering, you know, systems, policies for your organization, and, you know, maybe print out the seven principles of trauma-informed care. I made what I think is kind of a cute little graphic. Uh, it is. You know, nothing a, groundbreaking, but it's It's a cute. very <laughs> nice graphic. It is. It's very pleasant and pleasing to the eye. And I will um, make certain that it's linked as well because I want people to see it. Thank you. But print it out and look at it when you're making decisions and ask yourself each of those lens. What's the lens of safety as it relates to this? Mm-hmm. How can I think about how individual, how this, you know, is either a plus or minus to the team member's safety? Same with trust and transparency. Same with community. Same with collaboration, empowerment, humility and responsiveness, cultural, historical and gender issues. Again, this mm-hmm. is something you can do, you know, take half an hour as you're thinking about a project, as you're thinking about a choice as a leader and consider that it, it, you know, I won't say it's free because it does cost you some time, but I think having just these principles, these ideas as a lens to consider the impact of our action is a powerful tool in its own right as well. I love your piece of advice um, for leaders and, I love that you already gave it because that was going to be one of my questions for you was what's your advice? And it's ask yourself, how can I make this a choice? And that one act, making that a habit that you have Mm -hmm. opens the door for, well, I've made a choice. Is it now safe for that person, you know, to do the thing um, that they've chosen? Is it going to, you know, create belonging? Is there, an opportunity for collaboration. Um, can it be done in community? Yeah. That it's a wonderful springboard from I'm going to empower my people to opening up all of the other aspects. It, it is. And it's so nice because 
I think it's relatively easy to do. Like you have mm-hmm. to remind yourself to do it, but just how can I make this a choice? Mm-hmm. Just every time, like, how can I make this a choice? Can I make this a choice? How? And I think it's nice because a lot of times we ask leaders to do kind of hard stuff when we ask mm-hmm. them to model um, behaviors that support well-being or mental health or trauma-informed workplaces. And a lot of times, you know, leaders have to think about what their leaders expect. So we're asking leaders maybe to, hey, be vulnerable. Well, maybe they're existing in an environment where they don't feel like it's safe to be vulnerable. I bet yeah. they exist in an environment where they can find a way to create a choice for their team, though. Yeah. So, or maybe someone's just not ready to be vulnerable. They don't know how. That doesn't feel genuine to them at this point in their lives. That's okay, too. I bet you can find a way to create a choice for your team, though, in mm-hmm. a way that's genuine and, and you know, meets who you are. Because I think sometimes when we ask people it gets back to that whole, I feel very strongly about this. We don't ask people to disclose stories, experiences of trauma. Those stories are up to them. It's their choice. I think it's the same with vulnerability. I think vulnerability is so powerful, yeah, but it's not powerful when it's forced because it's not mm-hmm. real. It's not genuine. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it steals away power from individuals when they feel forced to disclose something that they're they're not comfortable with. No, exactly. Well, again, what I love about how can I make this a choice, it also, at the end of the day, it's going to make that manager's life easier because yes. you're giving you're giving the work to the employee in its fullness mm-hmm. that, that way. So a little bit of mental effort, that small investment is going to ease the burden of leadership. Yes. Who doesn't want that, right? 100%. And it's also a great tool to like, Get out of your own way if you struggle with micromanagement, because inherently when you're trying to provide choice, that is, that's working straight against micromanagement for you. So again, and a reminder, it does not mean you have to provide all of the options. Choice is as simple as this or that. And that still counts. Stephanie, I love how you are able to get to a place where it's simple acts. Because again, we started, you know, trauma is a concept and an experience that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And it can be very daunting to think, should I be doing this? Should I think about my leadership in this way? And rather than trying to tackle trauma, you know, the event, the experience, the effect, it's something as little as before I make an assignment, how can I make this a choice? How easy is that? And that's what trauma-informed workplaces are, is it's, here's this big, hairy challenge that we face as a society, as a culture. So many of us have these traumatic experiences we're carrying with us. And a lot of us don't even realize how they're showing up for us at work. And all I want to do is say, hey, Hey, managers, hey, leaders, hey, HR professionals, hey, team members, why don't you think about a handful of these things? And they also benefit a whole lot of other stuff in the workplace in terms of engagement, business results. Just think about it. And in doing that, you are actually, I would say you're avoiding re-traumatization. But more than that, I feel like in a lot of ways, you can actually be actively supporting someone's journey to Mm -hmm. 
recover from experiences of trauma. Because think about that. Someone in your life is always making sure that you have a choice. Yeah. Think about how powerful that is to someone who's experienced a lack of choices or even a lack of good choices in their life and Mm -hmm. is dealing with that. Instead, they work with a manager who always looks for a way to find them a choice. That is, I mean, that simple thing without even you knowing that background or history, that can absolutely be an amazing contribution to an individual's career, but also their life overall. Yeah. Yeah. When we had our, um, our prep time, something, I wrote something down that you said that day that has been central to how I've been thinking about today's conversation. Um, and you said that you know, this work, the reason that you're so passionate about this is it's a way to make workplaces um, better for everybody. Yeah. And that's exactly what I hear. I think you've, you've laid out, again, a, a really clear roadmap for how we can do that um, as leaders, as employees, as employers. And it's, it's, it feels very good to be having this conversation uh, to think about how we could change the world through work. Yeah. And I think we can. Mm-hmm. I think I think this is the moment. I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I think people are more willing to talk about it now for whatever reason. And I think this is the moment. I think mm-hmm. we're ready for a change. I think there are demographic shifts in the workplace that mean a change has to happen. Kind of beyond a place where the status quo will work. And I also think, you know, I think about my experience as an HR professional. I think about experiences, managers and leaders, and oftentimes things feel very disjointed. There are all these kind of like bolted on answers to all these different problems and it's confusing Mm -hmm. and it's overwhelming. And what I love about trauma-informed cultures is it's, hey, yeah, it's a lot. I, I won't pretend that it's, you know, hey, do this one thing and all your problems are solved. It's no magic pill because um, cultural change is hard. And anyone who tells you it's not is lying to you. They're but- so lying. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> They're lying. If they are like, oh, we'll change your culture in six months. They've lied to you. Congratulations. Six um, years. <laughs> there you go. Now they're telling the truth. <laughs> but it's these seven things that you can think about. Maybe you don't think about all seven at one time. Maybe you think about two or three and you iterate and you get better, but it's consistent. Mm -hmm. So your leaders are thinking about these seven principles or whatever principle you want to focus on. And it's like, how can we think about empowerment? How can we think about collaboration? How can we do this over and over? And so there's this guiding principle for your managers and leaders to consider versus nine different things that they're supposed to do to check the boxes to be a good manager. And so I like that as well. That's one of the things in um, how we prepare and position managers of people that we, we treat all the stuff like it's extra work and it's not like the relationship, the thought that goes into the work, the, the stuff is the work, right? Engagement, performance management, feedback. 
that's your job as a manager. And we've got to start integrating those asks of leaders into the flow of their work as opposed to treating it like one more thing. Um, Like a project. And, And I think, I think that's, what's challenging is, you know, I was that person a lot of the time, you know, Mm -hmm. shame on me, shame on how we approached it, where here's this extra thing, like we're checking off this thing on our list. We're going to do performance reviews. So here's the new process. Hey, thanks. I trained you on it. Goodbye. And that's great. (laughs) But I had this moment the other day and I was like, you know what? A lot of times people come into organizations and, you know, they take a look at performance reviews, they revamp the performance process, or you have a leader who's like, we really should be doing different performance reviews. And we got to push it back. we got to push back to why, why, why? And I think that helped. Like, I think, you know, organizations have cultural values or values mm-hmm. and they leverage those. That's what I want folks to do with trauma-informed principles to go, okay, we want to do performance. Someone's, when you say let's do performance reviews, you're starting with a solution, not the problem. Yeah. And so, and we do it, we do it all the time because we're like, oh, teams have employee engagement surveys or they have performance reviews or they have, you know, career letters. It's like, okay, but why? And I think, again, trauma-informed culture principles can be a great way to start with why or you know if you get an ask hey i want to do this thing let's let's go back to why mm-hmm. and see how it builds out and then that way you can be thoughtful about how it supports your journey to be trauma-informed supports your culture that already exists instead of creating a project yeah. an extra project that people have to do yeah what are we trying to accomplish yes either ask why or what you know the yep what is the desired outcome of the intervention, the thing? Yeah. Um, and if, will it actually get us that? And why do we need it? Engagement such a perfect conversation. Training is also another one. Uh. Oh, here's the, I knew I, knew I was going to get a reaction. Of you. Oh, we have this problem. Well, training. I'm like, are we, uh, well, wait, there's so many things before that. Speaking of things that I could talk a long time about, the I need you to come train my team. Yes. Oh, two people are having fights. I need you to come train everybody on conflict management. No, maybe you need to tell your people what's acceptable to do at work and what's not acceptable. So I mentioned uh, a panel that you hosted earlier this week, and I know you've got a calendar of those. I would like to make certain we take the opportunity to talk about all of the work that you're doing. Um, You're writing, you're teaching. Uh, What all do you have going on right now? What's what's on your horizon? Oh, so much. And Mm -hmm. it's so exciting. Um, So I like to say that if you like to read, if you like to listen or you like to watch, I have something for you. So if you are a reader, I do. I have a series of articles that I publish on Medium. And I also, if anyone wants to subscribe, um, you can go to thewoundedworkforce.com and subscribe there and you can get those emails direct, those um, articles directly to your inbox once a week. And I, pr- I promise not to spam you um, with anything or sell your information. 
if you are a listener, and I'm guessing you might be a listener since you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> um, I do also host a podcast. It's called Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. Really creative stuff. Um, so <laughs> I host it. We release an episode uh, every week on Wednesdays. And the episodes are a combination of me talking to you, explaining some of the principles of trauma-informed cultures, explaining some items, and some amazing conversations. I just recently had an amazing conversation with Catherine Manning, who actually wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review about why we need trauma-informed workplaces. And she is a wealth of knowledge. So check that out. Anywhere podcasts are available, you can subscribe to Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces and listen to some great conversations. And last but certainly not least, probably the coolest thing I do is we have a, right now it is a bi-weekly panel. Um, we'll probably move to a monthly panel in 2024, but it is panel discussions on the principles of trauma-informed workplaces. So we get a group of amazing contributors to come on board and have a conversation about these principles, leverage some of their expertise. Those go live on LinkedIn and on mm -hmm. Facebook. And then if you want to go back and check them out, um, if you've missed some of them, safety, trust and transparency, community, and now collaboration are all live on our YouTube channel. And then we do have a training coming up um, November 10th. Um, it is called the Trauma-Informed Leader. It is a 90-minute training dedicated to very quickly getting you up to speed on what it means to be a trauma-informed leader and how you can take practices back with you, kind of like our, our choice example. What can you do? What can you take with you to be a more trauma-informed leader? And we will be having some additional trainings before the end of the year, um, more information coming soon, but we're going to have offerings for individuals. Um, so a great way to keep an eye on those is to subscribe or to follow me on LinkedIn. Um, we're going to have some goal setting. Uh, trauma-informed goal setting, and we're also going to have a special cohort for folks who want to move past prior workplace trauma, just because that's been something that there's been a massive need for. And then more trainings coming soon in 2024. I also offer um, bespoke or custom trainings for organizations and teams as well. You have a lot going on, and I'm I very do. grateful that you made time for me today. Kate, this was so fun. You're I good. like Thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Oh. I really appreciate the opportunity. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I'd like to close by referring back to a statistic that Stephanie mentioned. She shared that 70% of adults identify as having experienced trauma. Employers need to pay attention and take action. When we talk about making the workplace trauma-informed, we're talking about making work a place where employees are supported and thus able to perform. The question for every leader is how do I start? Thank you for joining me in the comfy chairs. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating or review, or share it with others. You'll find Comfy Chairs updates and other thoughts on leadership and learning on Instagram at 123limited. That's O-N-E-2-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3-
LTD. Until next time.